environment, which is one of the leading conservation research institutes in India. We talk about a lot of his research work and uh, tropical deforestation and degradation in India. Come, sir, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Talk about your great conservation career you have had over the years. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be with you. What got you interested in conservation and biodiversity? Well, it was my visit to the Eastern Himalaya that got me interested in biodiversity. I went there for the first time in 1960s. Uh, as you perhaps know, I was born and raised in Punjab. But I went when I went to the Eastern Himalaya, what I saw in terms of the richness of plants and animals, which we now call biodiversity, was incredible. Something I have never experienced before. As I said, especially growing up in Northern India. And to just give you one example, in the Western Himalaya, I had seen only one species of rhododendron. A rhododendron is an ornamental plant, grows wild, and it's a genus with trees with very large bright flowers, often red in color. So whereas in the Western Himalaya, there is in very, very large landscapes, you will find only one species, whereas in Eastern Himalaya, in the tiny state of Sikkim, one can see more than 35 species of rhododendrons. And in the entire Eastern Himalaya, there are perhaps 110 sp different species of rhododendron. So that was my first encounter, I would say, with the incredible richness of life we have on earth. And of course, in, in, in India, and at the same time, uh, as I witnessed this biodiversity, I also experienced firsthand the process of deforestation right in front of my eyes and the effects of deforestation. But at that time, I could put neither biodiversity nor deforestation in context because very few people were talking about deforestation and the term biodiversity itself was only coined 20 years later in the mid 1980s. So in 1996, you founded the Ashoka Trust for Research in Environmental Ecology, which is one of the leading conservation organizations in India. What motivated you to establish this organization and how has ATRI changed over the years? Well, the primary motivation for setting up ATRI was the deforestation I just described and the overall decline in biodiversity that I had witnessed not only in India, but also elsewhere in the world, especially during the 80s and 90s, when I was working in Central America in the country of Costa Rica. Then when I resumed my work in India in the early 90s, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, 
I had also worked in India as a graduate student in 1960s. And I again started my work in India in the early 90s. At that time, I felt that there was no institute in India that was exclusively devoted to conservation and sustainable use of our incredible biological resources or biodiversity. Indeed, there were institutions in forestry, in oceanography, in wildlife, but the approach to biodiversity was segmented and not holistic. Secondly, I felt that the decline of our, our biodiversity has not only ecological, but also political, social, human, and economic dimensions. Nevertheless, uh, most of the institutions were approaching the issue only from a scientific point of view. Thirdly, I felt if you want to make progress, you have to address not only the knowledge gaps, but also the policy and institutional gaps. And since most of the institutions at that time devoted to biodiversity were in the public domain, I didn't feel that they were in a position to address the complex issues around policy or action on the ground. So that was one of the reasons why I and my colleagues established a tree in Bangalore in 1996. Our initial focus was on biodiversity and to issues related to water, which is an important service provided by natural ecosystems. But then, of course, later we expanded our programs to include climate change. And now, at this time, ATRI is one of the few institutions in the country that is dealing with three major environmental challenges, and that is biodiversity, water, and climate change. Uh, furthermore, ATRI not only generates interdisciplinary knowledge, but also this knowledge is applied for policy analysis and for design of new policies through our center of policy design. This knowledge also flows downstream into our action-oriented programs in multiple landscapes, working with local communities on issues such as land rights, land management, and sustainable livelihoods. And finally, I should mention the ATRIES Academy for Conservation and Sustainability Studies anchors our master's and PhD programs in conservation and sustainability. And at the same time, we have very extensive programs for K through 12 school children to enable them to understand and experience the world around them. 
and primarily the natural world around the communities in which they live. Thus overall, I should say, a tree has now grown to be a rather complex organization with multiple functions. You also founded the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies in the Environment and Development. So could you talk a bit about what this initiative was about? Well, uh, the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies in the Environment and Development, briefly known as CISED, was established again to broaden the range of issues in the environment to be addressed. Another purpose of the center was also to broaden interdisciplinary approaches that are needed to address these problems. As I said earlier, the initial focus of ATRI was narrow and largely confined to biodiversity. But apart from colleagues at ATRI, I was also working with other colleagues in Bangalore who were interested in addressing a range of other issues, issues other than biodiversity. And one of those persons was Dr. Sharad Lele. It is actually Dr. Sharad Lele who was the prime motivator for the establishment of the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies in Environment and Development, and in fact, its true founder. I and some other colleagues in Bangalore uh, joined him uh, to, to establish the center. But then later, as the scope of work under ATRI expanded, uh, Dr. Sharad Lele suggested that both SISED and ATRI should merge. So as a result, there was this uh, integration of two programs or two centers. Uh, and as a result, this also enabled ATRI to further expand uh, its programs and mandate. You are also working on the national mission on biodiversity and human well-being. Could you elaborate a bit about this initiative? Yeah, this has been an interesting initiative, and that is uh, the initiative on national mission on biodiversity and human well-being. I think it was in 2018 that I conceived a meeting of conservation biologists in Bangalore to develop the idea of a national mission on biodiversity and human well-being. Our concept note was approved by the Prime Minister's Science, Technology and Innovation Advisory Council in 2019, very quickly after we have developed the concept note the then principal scientific advisor to the government of India, Dr. Vijay Raghavan, asked our group 
now known as Biodiversity Collaborative, to develop the roadmap for the mission, which we did after a series of national consultations. And let me say that the complex mission has seven components, uh, cataloging and documenting all the biodiversity of India at the genic level, at the species level, at the ecosystem level, a program on ecosystem services, a program on sustainable agriculture based on biodiversity, uh, program on restoration and climate change, on One Health, a program on bioeconomy, and finally capacity building. And in our view, and the view of other stakeholders who participated in these consultations, there were several hundred people, we feel that the multidimensional mission will help restore, conserve, and sustainably use India's unusual biodiversity. And we want to see, firstly, that the biodiversity is embedded as a key consideration in all development planning particularly in sustaining agriculture and ecosystem services, restoring degraded lands, and mitigating climate change. Second, we want to see biodiversity as a main element of citizen and policy oriented towards conservation of biodiversity. And thirdly, we want to enhance, or we feel the mission will enhance capacity across all sectors for the realization of India's national biodiversity targets, as well as United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So the outputs of the mission are very, very closely linked with the realization of many of the SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals, which have been aggregated upon by the global community. And these goals deal with protection of nature and other and natural assets and at the same time, advancement of human well-being, whether we are talking about livelihoods, or poverty alleviation, or public health. So from that point of view, it's a very, very comprehensive mission. Of course, unfortunately, the mission at this time is languishing uh, because the government so far has neither fully approved the mission nor provided further support to biodiversity collaborators. Nevertheless, uh, my colleagues and I carry on the work at a small scale, uh, remaining hopeful uh, that will be ultimately 
funded by the government and we are carrying on our activities at a limited scale with the support from private philanthropy. Uh, sorry for the very long answer, but this is a very, very important mission. And so I wanted to provide some details. Thank you so much for talking in great detail about this. So moving on towards deforestation. So you have obviously worked a lot with deforestation and the usage of natural resources in tropical landscapes, particularly in the Himalayas and Western Ghats. So some reports claim that over 300 million people in India depend on forests for livelihoods. So what are the implications of this for conservation in India? I should say that we really lack uh, good data on the number of people dependent on forests or natural ecosystems in India. In fact, it's not clear uh, what we mean by the statement that an X number or a certain number of people are dependent on natural ecosystems. In a way, we all are, the 1.3 billion people in India. I think the figure 300 million people perhaps include persons living in and around natural landscapes that are largely dependent on various ecosystem services derived from these uh, landscapes. And these ecosystem services, uh, I'm referring not only to, to water and, uh, and, and things like pollinators and so on and so forth, but I'm also referring to, to food, uh, referring to tangible products, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that comes out of the natural ecosystems uh, that people harvest, collect to sustain their livelihoods. And this number might also include uh, the fishers living in coastal communities, uh, people who are dependent on products and services coming out of our oceans and, and coastal ecosystems. Now, uh, the official figures for indigenous groups or tribes that live in and around forests is estimated to be 100 million. But again, uh, and the reason I emphasize this, uh, this group of people is that we know that they have been largely dependent on, uh, on, on natural ecosystems for sustaining their livelihoods. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I feel that this is an old number. Uh, this is an old figure, and certainly many of these people do rely on forest produce uh, for their livelihoods. Uh, but there are perhaps many of this, many people from this group have moved on to agriculture and other vocations during the last few decades. Uh, we just do not, do not know. 
I, I think uh, I should add, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, it's fair to say uh, that the number of people who really directly depend on their livelihoods uh, or a very large part of their livelihoods on, uh, on products and services derived from natural ecosystems in India uh, is perhaps several hundred million. What are some of the key socioeconomic drivers of deforestation around India? I think the drivers of deforestation in India are, are very complex. Uh, they vary from place to place. This is true not only for India, but also for other parts of the world. But if I were to make a general statement and not really get into the long list of drivers, I would mention only two, and they cover a lot of other minor drivers. First, major driver are the development policies we are pursuing in relation to development of infrastructure, primarily roads, dams, and other large projects associated with mining and tourism. Second, there has been a slow and gradual expansion of agriculture into natural ecosystems uh, due to population growth uh, during the last uh, four or five decades. Uh, population growth that we now know has slowed down somewhat. And a third factor, which certainly is not really as important as, as, as the two factors I mentioned, I do need to mention that, and that is invasive species that have spread throughout Indian forests in subtropical and tropical regions and have caused extensive degradation. Uh, I want to distinguish degradation of forests from deforestation. And this is the degradation uh, that is gradual loss of biodiversity, gradual loss of standing biomass of native species due to the spread of these species that came to India from other parts of the world. One particular example is Lantana Camara that came to India from South America, of course, many, many decades ago in the last century, in the last century, and has now taken over the understory of many Indian forests. And I make that point also for another reason, uh, that is Biodiversity Collaborative is releasing a book on invasive species just next week in Bangalore. And thus, I think it is also appropriate to mention the role of invasive species in degradation. Uh, although, as I mentioned, uh, 
the other two factors, uh, that is the development policies and uh, expanding frontiers of agriculture due to population growth are perhaps the two major reasons for deforestation. So in one of your studies, you found that there was a spatial correlation between poverty and deforestation in the Eastern Himalayas, which is consistent with global trends. So could you elaborate a bit on this? I may have referred to this uh, spatial correlation between the high level of biodiversity and incidence of poverty, but I did not establish this relationship. Uh, I think there was somebody else, uh, a professor from uh, Columbia University, Jeffrey Sachs, who published a paper showing a special correlation between biodiversity rich areas and areas with high level of poverty on a global basis. However, I should mention that in India, some of the marginalized communities uh, with low incomes are indigenous communities in forested areas of central India and also eastern India. So what is the idea of natural forest management? Natural forest management refers to cutting down selected large trees from a natural forest without disturbing the rest of the forest. Uh, of course, uh, during the extraction process, some damage is likely to occur, but the expectation is that the forest uh, will recover after this uh, low level of extraction. In practice, however, such a low level of extraction is often not possible due to economic factors, especially in the tropics. And a lot, lot more trees are extracted than the plans prescribe. Thus, as a result, the damage is more extensive than anticipated, and the forest takes a much longer time to recover. Natural forest management may occur or may work, I should say, uh, in temperate areas where the forests are less diverse and they are also more homogeneous than in tropical forests. And I think there are very, very few areas in the tropics where natural forest management has been shown to be sustainable. So I don't think there is much natural forest man management going on uh, in, uh, in, in the Indian context uh, at this time. Could you elaborate on some better alternatives to these management strategies? You know, there are there are really no viable alternatives to economies based on the extraction of forest products from forests. 
our forests are really declining and they are under multiple pressures. So we really cannot think of think of economies uh, that are really going to rely very much on further extraction from whatever is left. So I don't think it is a particularly useful uh, line of discussion. Uh, indeed, uh, there are uh, there are very large number of uh, areas uh, or very large amount of land in India that is highly degraded. Uh, the forests are degraded. Uh, and, and not only forests, other natural landscapes, and they need to be restored. And of course, one can talk about the restoration processes that should be followed, what models of restoration one wants to use, but that's a, that's a slightly different topic and, uh, and doesn't come under under managing our existing forests. I will have a little, little bit more to say about uh, about managing our existing uh, natural landscapes or natural communities. But the reason I am not using the word forest is that there are other types of natural ecosystems too, which we need to conserve. Um, although in India, we generally use the term, term forest to describe all types of ecosystems. What are non-forest timber products and what role do they have in conservation in India? NTFPs or non-timber forest products, uh, they refer to products such as fruits, berries, leaves, tubers, and other parts of plants. Also, products such as honey collected, collected by wild bees. There's a wide range of products other than timber. Uh, they're called non-timber forest products. And these products are generally collected from forests in many parts of India by local communities, uh, by indigenous people. And uh, in terms of their role in conservation, certainly there are many parts of India where, where such products can be collected in, 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 in small quantities by local communities and indigenous people, but that's not the long-term answer to conservation issues in India. The long-term answer is, is, I will give in two parts. First of all, many of these communities, local communities which live in and around forests, they have no land rights. And they have a very uncertain tenure over, over a very small piece of land they might be cultivating. So we have to think of alternative economies that are not based on collection of NTFPs, but are, that are based on 
sustainable agroforestry or agricultural systems practiced on the land over which these communities have ownerships, they are of certain size, and that is going to be the solution to conserving biodiversity in the landscapes within which these small land holdings are embedded. And ultimately, of course, one has, one has to talk about other alternative livelihoods. So that is my, my take on non-timber forest products. I was actually going to ask about agroforestry, and I think you answered the question very well about how it can preserve biodiversity. So let's go, uh, hop on to the next question. So what role do you think indigenous communities play in tackling deforestation? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so let me say again uh, first, or let me emphasize uh, that in many parts of India, uh, deforestation being, is being caused by external forces associated with the development of infrastructure, as I mentioned earlier too. Certainly there is forest degradation uh, that cannot be addressed uh, without participation of indigenous or more generally local communities. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, many of these communities do not have land rights or they have very uncertain tenure over land. And they also have no participation in, in managing the landscapes, the larger landscapes uh, within which uh, they they live. So, so 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 unless these communities have a really a central role in managing bi biodiversity beyond their lands, I think the prospect for conservation in India cannot be considered very bright. What do you think India needs to do to create a more sustainable landscape, which not only conserves biodiversity, but alleviates poverty? I think again, uh, to, to reiterate, uh, you know, a combination of participatory approaches uh, with people having tenure over the land and a say, in how not only their own land, but also how the surrounding landscape is managed. And uh, that is going to be the key to not only uh, poverty alleviation in these areas, uh, but also in terms of uh, curtailing further degradation of habitats and also in restoring uh, the degraded areas. What has been your proudest achievement from your conservation career? <laughs> I think this is not for me to judge or say, I think this is for the others to judge. 
but I certainly think, uh, you know, the establishment of Atri, uh, which is now recognized as one of the premier institutions India has uh, with a global ranking, uh, which is known all over the world, uh, and not only in India. Um, I'm very proud of the work uh, my colleagues have done to take Atri where Atri is today. And uh, uh, the second thing I'm very proud of uh, is, uh, is really collaboration. I had wonderful colleagues and students who partnered with me to achieve something very tangible, whether it is in basic research or in applied research or in uh, establishing institutions such as ATRI and SISAP. And uh, so, so very briefly, two things, uh, the institutions, and secondly, uh, you know, the collaboration I have had with people. And my final question for you today is that, what, has, what have been some of your greatest challenges and some of your greatest learning from your conservation career? Well, uh, I think we are facing really very, very complex problems. And, and in order to address these problems, uh, we really need, uh, I would say, three things. We need insights from knowledge that is rooted both in traditional beliefs and practices of indigenous people and knowledge that is rooted in natural and social sciences. So we have to believe in the primacy of knowledge. And secondly, we need new institutions institutions that not only generate the type of knowledge I have outlined, but also apply this knowledge to practical problems on the ground and to such issues as governance and policies. And furthermore, institutions which have the potential to produce a new breed of, or a new generation of environmental leaders. And of course, I am referring to institutions like ATRI. India needs not only one ATRI, but hundreds of ATRIs. If we have to address uh, these, these challenges, and I should mention here, uh, by the way, that I am very encouraged by the fact that many institutions have come up during the last 25 years who have the same philosophy and approach as India has. So those are very, very good signs uh, for, the, for our country. And the third thing, uh, you know, again, 
First was knowledge, second institutions, and the third thing, uh, again, which I've emphasized before, is we need decentralized and participatory management of our natural assets, our natural landscapes, and our tremendous uh, biological heritage. And the last one, the last point, uh, you know, the participatory management uh, and other things too, the knowledge and institutions are going to be facilitated by, by collaboration and partnerships among individuals and institutions, among government agencies. Among government agencies, that's a very important point uh, I'm, I'm emphasizing. And then of course, between government agencies and, and, and civil society. That was the final question I had for you for this interview. Thank you so much time. Uh, thank you so much for making time for this. Well, it's a pleasure and uh, I, I really enjoyed addressing your questions and, uh, and good luck, good luck to your program. And, uh, and I think what you're doing is, is very much needed. I hope you enjoyed the podcast episode and if you did, don't forget to share and subscribe. The link to the uh, book on invasive species by Biodiversity Collaborators is in the description below. So do check it out.